it's such a good story. The, the, the Anglo-French thread of the Australian story gives it the context and it's a lot of daring do. You know, it's a ripping yarn and, and there's a lot of courage and there's a, a lot of mishaps and uh, it's very exciting. And I, I, above all, I think it would make children excited and you, you'd want to know who won. <laughs> Thank you for joining me for the second of two water cooler conversations centred around Australia Day and the need for a stronger foundational narrative that accurately describes our country and the values that unite us. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. It's hard to have a serious discussion about the meaning of European settlement unless we can first agree on the facts. Yet fewer than four out of ten Australians know which event they're supposed to be either celebrating or mourning on January the 26th, according to a recent survey by Compass Polling. Only 39% correctly identified January 26th as the date of the arrival of the first fleet at Sydney Cove. A new account of the founding of modern Australia by Margaret Cameron Ash exposes how little we've known up to now about the British government's decision to establish a colony in New South Wales and how much of our understanding has been clouded by prejudice. Tellingly, Cameron Ash trained as a lawyer rather than a historian. Her book, Beating France to Botany Bay, The Race to Found Australia, debunks the myth that Australia was purely a dumping ground for Britain's criminal class, the explanation for settlement that was considered unquestionably true by Manning Clark, one of Australia's most influential historians. In his seminal four-volume work, A History of Australia, Clark makes no mention whatsoever of the French voyager Captain Jean La Perouse, whose expedition to the Pacific stirred the British into action. As Cameron documents intelligence that La Perouse was on course for Australia with two vessels laden with trees, plants, seeds, manufactured goods, tools and unwrought iron convinced Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger that French settlement was imminent. The photo finished to the race to Botany Bay in which the 11 vessels of the First Fleet anchored just five days before the arrival of La Perouse has the makings of an epic movie. Margaret Cameron Ash joins me today to tell that story. Margaret, welcome to the Water Cooler Conversation. Thank you for the invitation. I want to explore your fascinating book and what you tell us about the motivation for settling Australia. Why it was that suddenly in August 1786, yes. the British Parliament, apparently out of nowhere, just suddenly makes this mm-hmm. big decision. We'll come on to that in a minute. But first of all, as I said in my introduction, you trained as a lawyer. You, you practised as a lawyer. How did you make the drift from the law to history? Well, it happened over a long period of time. I was working in London and uh, sailing on the Thames uh, on Saturday and... Uh, uh, an old chap was in the bar after the sailing and said to me, you're Australian. He said, uh, I've, done, I've done many a Sydney to Hobart yacht race and I could never understand that when Cook was in Bass Strait in 1770, he didn't realise he was in Bass Strait. And I thought that was an interesting point. Uh, I put it, I stored it in the back of my mind and got on with my life. And about 10 years later, another sailor had assaulted me and said uh, uh, I couldn't, uh, he couldn't understand why Cook wasn't tempted to enter Sydney Heads and find Port Jackson. 
and I kept thinking about these sorts of things, why, why the uh, government invested what would have been millions in sending uh, 700 petty criminals to the other side of the world, why La Perouse arrived so quickly and so on. And I, I moved from practicing law to editing law and then uh, teaching evidence. And I think uh, I got to a stage where I decided to give up uh, teaching evidence and find some and find, find some for this story. I don't want to be too harsh on Australia's historians past and present, but is there a bit of an indictment on their profession that this crucial moment, you know, probably the turning point in the mm. human mm. history mm. of Australia, 1788, it's so little understood when we look into it. It's almost as if they just take it as a accomplished it, fact and yeah. nothing more needs to be said. Yes, I... I think the British did put out a cover story, the the cover story of, of the convicts, and it seemed a good story. Uh, convicts were hugely important, of course, to give a, a critical mass of occupiers and cheap labour and so on, but that wasn't the reason. There were plenty of other things to do with the convicts, and uh, namely the Penitentiary Act, but other things as well. But I think it was such an easy story to accept and it covered up so much else. So I think the historians just accepted it. Yeah. I mean, I, I came to Australia in the 80s. And, um, you know, like every newcomer, I, I thought I should read and learn a bit about the history. And I was recommended to read Manning Clark's uh, Concise <laughs> yes. History of Australia. Um, yes. And I, I could, you know, I couldn't. I think it was just, just it was a penal colony. That yeah. was his only yes. explanation. And I, I checked this the other day. I went back actually to his... Yeah the first volume of his longer form history. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, he doesn't mention the French once. He doesn't mention doesn't La Perouse once. No, and yet, doesn't. as mm. you uncover, this was the crucial element. It was the thing that made Australia happen as a, a settled it's, European country. It's very odd that uh, Manning Clark doesn't mention that because that famous speech by Joseph Banks when he said, oh, look, you should send the convicts to Botany Bays and it's a lovely place. And he said that before the Bunbury Committee in way back in 1779. And no one has ever, uh, well, Manny Clark hasn't, uh, followed through the Bunbury Committee to find out what the result was. And the result was that Banks was thrown out of court Mm. and instead they uh, quickly passed the Penitentiary Act and the penitentiaries were now going to house the convicts who would stay in Britain uh, and they would seek penitence, they'd be given hard labour and they'd uh, become good citizens for Britain. And you would think that if you raise an inquiry, uh, you'd look for the result, but no one did, nor for the Beecham inquiry either. It happened in 85, which was much the same sort of thing. Uh, But um, I I was surprised that they didn't... uh, Mm mention mm. the result. Well, so, so to your book, um, you, you, chapter one, Suddenly One Summer, <laughs> is when you you come to that moment, that cabinet meeting mm. on the 18th of August, 1786. Right. Mm. Tell me what had led up to that point and, and why that meeting was so important. Well, it was in high summer and, and, and Parliament was uh, having a vacation uh, which was quite good because you could always do much more in the vacation than you could when you were being hounded in Parliament. Mm. But a lot of people had wanted to seize Cook's discoveries, but 
that was too hard. It was it was put on the back burner, and the. American Revolution hadn't really helped much because that had taught the English that you go to the expense and trouble of colonising a place and the ongoing cost of the administration and then the ungrateful colonists just Mm. rise against you and uh, cause a revolt. So what Britain wanted was trade, not territory. And Australia wasn't all New Holland as it was then, was not offering too much Finance. There were no obvious commodities. There was no sophisticated uh, population to buy their cardigans and that sort of thing. So it wasn't a, a prospect. But Cook had found strategic pieces, uh, such as Port Jackson and Bass Strait, and had to that had to be kept quiet uh, until it could be colonised or occupied, garrisoned. So they just hoped none of that would happen. And La Perouse left in August 85. The, the Brits knew that, but they, that they made inquiries as to what was going on, uh, but nothing too bad was going to happen, apparently. But then, because the Americans also tried to find out what La Perouse was up to, Thomas Jefferson asked John Paul Jones, who was out on the coast, to find out. And uh, Jones was a very handsome man and had his own way of finding these things out, and he did very well. And he sent a letter back. And by this stage, a, a wonderful quixotic man called John Ledyard was great mates with Jefferson. He was also about the only man in Paris who had been to uh, Australia. He'd, he'd um, sailed with Cook's third voyage. So he called Ledyard in to interpret John Paul Jones's letter. And then happenstance took him to... Uh, uh, London a year later and that was one of my eureka moments because it would only it would take us an Australian not an American or not even an Englishman to know that the 18th of August was the date in Australian history 18th of August 1786 because things happened before that the decision was made and then there was an almighty scramble to get the fleet off mm. but it was uh, and that was based on new intelligence, essentially, about about La Perouse and his plans. Yes, yes, because uh, it was a, a wonderful letter that John Paul Jones sent. It, it said that the two ships were going, uh, there were about 200 people on the ships. Some 40 of them or more were really farmers and uh, agriculturalists. There were farming machinery, and above all, there were a lot of plants being put on the ships, which were, were for, suitable for the south of France, which was a, a, a climate phrase that was much used in those days. And it said La Perouse is going to make some colonies. He is going to make them in uh, for the fur trade in the North Pacific, and he's going to make colonies in New Holland. And that was that. And when uh, Ledyard recited this to Joseph Banks, who was of course, also a Cook alumnus, so they had this uh, association. Uh, Banks got what he wanted. He, uh, he'd been pushing for colonisation for, gosh, almost 20 years, and finally he'd got it. So it's the realisation, or, or the belief anyway, based on, interestingly, I guess one of the earliest examples of US-British 
intelligence. Yes. <laughs> joint intelligence. Uh, joint intelligence, the, yes. the French are more than, you know, La Perouse is more than on a voyage of exploration. He's there with in, the intention of settling somewhere in I, the Pacific for trade purposes. I don't know that he, he was only, what, 24 when he did that, went on the Endeavour voyage. I think what got him going was when he was in Batavia on the way back on the Endeavour. He was uh, just being a tourist. Uh, he was walking down the street with the uh, Tahitian he had brought with him. And a Dutchman popped out. And this is all in, in uh, uh, Banks's uh, journal, which incidentally wasn't uh, published for over 100 years. But th- he was walking down the street the Dutchman pops out and says oh when he points to the Tahitian he says oh that bloke was here last year and Banks says no he wasn't he's, he's never been here and he says, oh yes it was that bloke Bougainville he had a Tahitian which indeed Bougainville did and he'd been across the Pacific and he'd made divers discoveries and lots of claims for France well that put the fear of God into Banks and into Cook, and I and I say in my earlier book, Lying for the Admiralty, that that's when he wrote his possession speech in the hope that that would take possession of Australia, even if Bougainville hadn't, which Bougainville almost did. It was only the barrier reef that stopped him getting there. And ever since then, I think Banks had been very anxious about the French getting the east coast of Australia. Yeah, so step back at a higher level, what seems to be happening at that stage from... From, from your account, is that in the second half of the 18th century, the Pacific starts coming into play. Yep. That yep. up until then, mm. there have been territorial battles largely centred around the Atlantic, but after that, the Pacific starts to becoming mm. important, mm. And, and in a sense, the world is becoming globalised for the first time. Is that... That that is right, and and it it was uh, the the tri- the trigger was the Seven Years' War, and France's loss of her North American empire, yeah. and the they were first off out of the gates. It was Bougainville who secretly and very effectively went down and colonised the Falkland Islands, which was a terrible shock for the English, and they. That was Philip Stevens was head of the Admiralty there, well, the Secretary of the Admiralty, and he was never going to let that happen again, which I think was why the uh, English reacted very strongly at every move the French made thereafter. So Bougainville did establish a colony on the Falklands, which was the gateway to the Pacific, uh, and therefore very strategic until Tahiti was found. But it was a, the French threat that then sent off uh, John Byron and then uh, Wallace uh, uh, went off and then Cook, of course, and three voyages of Cook. But yes, it was, they were out to get a, a southern empire by then. So it's impossible to imagine that Australia was going to remain an isolated island, mm. if you like, an isolated mm. continent populated by a relatively small population of essentially hunter-gatherers. Uh, that state of affairs was not going to last no. until the 19th century. Uh, look, I wouldn't have thought so. It's, it's, um, it's, it's time. Look, it would eventually. We, it, today, we, we would probably be um, 
we'd be a little bit like Europe or Africa. We'd be speaking different languages. Um, how many different languages, I don't know. But yes, it would have it would have been taken over by someone and by more than one, I suspect. Mm. Uh, but the timing was extraordinary because, first of all, Sydney was the first world city that was founded in the Enlightenment. Mm. The second extraordinary factor was that it was done in that tiny lull of six years between the American Revolution ending in 1783 and the French Revolution starting in 1789. And so chaos abroad, but in this tiny lull, the British managed to settle Australia. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's incredible when you, when you think of it. And also, you know, the boldness of the, the venture. Mm. The, the Dutch had been visiting the west coast of Australia and mm. travelled along the south coast to some extent, I think, for yeah. 100 years earlier. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, and, mm. uh, and been picking up a little bit of trade, but not much. It didn't look like a very prosperous place if mm. you were primarily a trading nation, as Holland was. Yes, and um, and it was dictated by those commercial uh, yeah considerations. Uh, yeah. So we just hit this this window of opportunity, yeah. and it was it, it was that because mm. it it Britain didn't have the resources to do it during the American War, and they wouldn't have really had the resources to do it initially uh, through the uh, French Wars. But the the other great advantage that Britain had was that. Back in 1783, George III had staged his own little coup d'etat and he threw out the Fox North uh, coalition, which he didn't like, and put in this 24-year-old William Pitt. Now, the advantage of that to Australia, really, was that Pitt, as soon as he won the next general election, he got a landslide and that provided uh, political stability in England mm. for the rest of the century. Now, none of the other countries had this. France certainly didn't have it. And so I think the survival of the colony, in fact, is predicated by that. I think if, if, they'd, if they'd all been niving each other in Whitehall, I think it would have had ramifications in Sydney. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Let's talk about the, the race to get to Australia, the race, the race to settle mm. here. Uh, which turned out to be incredibly tight. I mean, as you say, La Perouse had set off from France in, what, 1785? Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. he'd been at sea for two more years. than two years yeah. by the time you get to the Australian summer of uh, 1777, 1778. Mm -hmm. The first fleet sets off in 
May, May, yeah, 1777. Mm. So they've been on the sea, on the high seas for seven, seven months, eight months, mm. and then they arrive and they anchor in Botany Bay. Let's talk about the Botany Bay decoy first, and then talk about <laughs> why Botany Bay. Why didn't they just come straight to Circular Key? Because <laughs> what we now know is <laughs> Circular Key. Because although Cook had found uh, Port Jackson. He'd only seen it from the shores. He hadn't entered it and he hadn't sounded it. And there was no way Philip could have taken 11 ships through that entrance without sounding for a sandbar or something and lose uh, 1,500 people. So uh, it had to be sounded. It was also because Botany Bay had been sounded, Cook had given excellent instructions about where to park his ships and so on, not on the south shore as he had, but on the north shore mm. and so on. So that was a good place for all these ships, these 11 ships coming from Cape Town, which extraordinarily all arrived within 40 hours of each other, which <laughs> you wonder how on earth that could have happened. But uh, Before we go on, that, that, that's, that's a feat in itself, mm. right? The, the whole navigation exercise that mm. gets eleven ships here. Mm. Oh, it, was, it was a very successful voyage. Uh, mm. Very, or very relatively few lives lost on the way. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Cook, of course, has already pioneered the science of overcoming scurvy, getting yes. vitamin C on board mm. and everything else mm. you need. And the first fleet route is planned mm. with that in view, picking mm. up fresh food so that people mm. don't catch scurvy. Because navigation equipment has come a long way in the previous century, indeed the previous 50 years. So that's quite an achievement, getting 11 ships from Britain to here mm. in that time frame. Mm. None of them lost. Mm. And they manage it. Yep. Yes, yes. Good on Philip. And then mm. they sail into Botany Bay. And I'm intrigued by this because I, I look at Botany Bay now as it now is. They landed on the north side, or they, they anchored on the north side yeah. on Cook's advice. Yes. Presumably round about the La Perouse Peninsula, where, where the current airport is. Is that that's yes. the location? Yes, yes. E east of the current runway, yeah. East of the current runway? Yes, oh. yeah. Uh, where, where it goes out into the water. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So, uh, yes. So, the, well, with 11 ships, they were scattered all down that coast uh, towards the um, headlands. Um, but yes, they they uh, were there. Uh, the minute the minute um, uh, Hunter arrived with the last of the ships on the eighteenth, nineteenth, twentieth, on the morning of the twenty first, Monday the twenty first, uh, Philip rushed in three little boats and rowed around to Sydney Harbour to sound the entrance and then find a bay. Uh, a cove which would be the right place with the fresh water and so on and he uh, they slept the first night at Camp Cove then the three of them went off in different directions so that he could get as much surveying done he couldn't keep it the, the convicts incidentally were still locked in their holds in Botany Bay he couldn't let them out until they reached their final destination so you can, you can imagine the pressure on him mm. so he uh, goes up the harbour comes to Sydney Cove, which is at the narrowest part of the harbour, uh, decides that this is the place that you, uh, if you go out to Dawes Point, you can see any French ships coming down the harbour. And uh, he sleeps at Sydney Harbour that night. 
and clears off uh, to go back to get the 11 ships uh, the next morning. This is Wednesday the 23rd, which happens to be the same day that La Perouse sights Broken Bay up north. And he then turns south. He knows he's got to come south. And the extraordinary thing that they literally were in a photo finish at that stage, and yet they didn't see each other mm. that, that afternoon. So Philip whips back. He arrives back on the evening of the 23rd and says to everybody, right, we're off tomorrow morning, all 11 of us, the, the 11 ships. But the, the weather turned. It was uh, a Sydney storm for the next two days. Uh, the, you can imagine the French, the French ship had their noses at the entrance on Thursday the 24th. And, mm. uh, and, uh, Pretty much could, like the summer we're in. having now, I yeah. think. I was reading the yes. account of the weather in your book. You yes, know, the, yeah. It these was huge... Huge electric storms, Yeah, yes. electric storms. Yes. But you know, to go back to Botany Bay, this, of course, is subject to your first book, Lying for the Admiralty. It's your belief that Captain Cook deliberately uh, kept his knowledge of Sydney Cove or Sydney mm. Harbour mm. quiet. Botany mm. Bay, in a sense, was a decoy because mm. if the French got that intelligence or some other foreign power, they might use it. But, but mm. There was always the intention to settle in Sydney harbour once they'd been able to mm. do a bit of a recce. There, there is evidence of this, there, of this secret keeping. That is that a few months before leaving London, Philip wrote a document saying, if I wish to, I will go up to a harbour north of Botany Bay, nearby, but to the north of Botany Bay, uh, where there are several islands where I can keep the cattle so that the Aborigines can't burn the grass around them, which is what, if you remember, that's what had happened to Cook up in Queensland when he had to stop there. Now, that document says that Philip knew there was an island with, sev- uh, there was a harbour with several islands. And I think only three people have had a guess at how on earth Philip could have known this. But you can't see the islands outside Sydney Harbour. And so the only way that Cook could have seen them was to walk across the land and uh, up to Bellevue Hill or thereabouts and, mm. have it and find it. It seems an inevitability about the fact that Sydney becomes the first place settled. It, it is, as you say, I mean, it's the deepest mm. harbour in the world. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best natural harbours in the world. And on the East coast of Australia, it's one of the few real harbours for thousands of kilometres either direction. If you're going to settle Australia, it seems to me that's where you'd start. It was, and in a in a world before the Panama or Suez canals, it was going to be a very strategic port for all ships because you come out of the Atlantic and you then are in the Southern Ocean and Sydney is a great place to go to hmm. uh, because they all need... Uh, bit of R&R and they all need to uh, fix their ships and fix their men. Just to complete the story about the race for settlement and that January of 1788, La Perouse arrives in Botany Bay several days after. Well, they actually, Philip. it's a it's a traffic jam, actually. The weather clears. Well, actually, Philip manages to get through the electric storm up there on the evening of the 25th, but on the 26th of January, 
the French can finally get in. They've been out for a day and a half by this stage. They finally come in to Botany Bay and are quite happy to see the English. <laughs> they thought they might not, but they're they, nice to have someone to chat to. And all the English can do was hightail it, race for the exit. Mm. And the French had no idea why they were exiting. Mm. And uh, they came in and they settled in for six weeks. They stayed here six weeks. But the British were fighting to get out and they crashed into each other and all sorts of things. Mm. It, was a, it was a big, big uh, not, mu- not much written about in the journals, but enough to know it happened. Uh, D notice raises its head again. But they did get up and they were all in by sunset on the 26th. In Sydney Cove. Mm. And then it all starts. Now, as you say, Sydney is the first place to be settled. The first city to be settled or what becomes a city in the Enlightenment. I, I talk about that theme in my book, The Lucky Culture, making comparisons with the United States. It seems to me that if you're looking at the character of Australia as it, as it is, as it became, it's quite important to know that it was settled in the Enlightenment. They, they had at least some basic agricultural science, for instance, out mm. of this, you know, this great mm. burst in scientific discovery that, that, that comes out of the Enlightenment. They had the technology to get here by boat, of course, was much improved as well because Mm of science and so on and so on. So they benefit from science, but they also benefit, it seems to me, from an enlightened attitude towards things like slavery. It's a different proposition, isn't it, um, from the United States? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So Australia's character as it is now surely goes back to that point that it was settled in the Enlightenment. It does, and that statement about slavery that um, Philip made before he even came here, he said, it's a free country, there'll be no slaves. That was terribly important uh, because that was done about 20 years before Britain itself passed legislation to stop the slave trade. And as David Malouf has said, it is what colours our national soul even today, it's, um, we're very lucky that we escaped that because Britain had the option to bring slaves and they decided not to. But the Enlightenment happened in other ways. Lord Sidney, he decided that they wouldn't have the military government that they initially decided on with Philip's first commission. He changed his mind over Christmas, gave Philip a second commission and said it would be a civil government. And he also brought the entire judicial Framework. He uh, brought the uh, English common law, uh, civil and criminal courts, uh, and there it was. In in from the minute the first fleet landed, we had a proper legal system. And that's significant, isn't it? I mean, it means when when, for instance, there are attacks or the murder of Aborigines, people can be tried for that. Yes, yes. From the start. Yes, and 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 were being able to seek legal recourse to your grievances is probably one of the greatest strengths which allowed the colony to survive those first decades. It put the faith in the colony, the confidence in the colony that it badly needed in those early days. The attitude towards the penal colony itself, of course, is influenced by the Enlightenment. I mean, to go back to to Manning-Clark, if you read Manning-Clark, you know, the, the penal colony was purely a way of getting the detritus off the streets of London and mm. get them way out of the way in, in some distant colony where they can be punished. If you read The Fatal Shore, for mm. instance, mm. Hugh's account is primarily that this is a place to punish 
But that was not in the thinking of the people who founded the colony, was it? And in the practice, it was much more a place where people had the chance of redemption, where mm. they could become honest, decent citizens and make a go of it. Yes, very much so. We, uh, The Brits had learnt from America that you had to be nice to the um, convicts. Their convict system was very different. They uh, sold them off more or less to the, to the shipment, the ship taker, and, and then to the uh, person who looked after them and disappeared from view. And they essentially uh, could, didn't all, of course, become white slaves um, within America. In uh, Australia, the government kept ownership, as it were, of the of the convicts, and they only had to finish. They'd already started serving from the minute the judge sentenced them. So by the time they got out here, they'd probably served a year or two or three. And um, only well, I hope that the time on the ship on the right. way over would have counted. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and so they. Uh, uh, got here as soon as they'd finished their sentence, which was usually seven or fourteen years. Uh, they got a block of land, uh, a grant of land, and they they were free to actually have a life that they probably would never have had in England. So, so there was that. But it was also not just the the detritus that came here. Um, in in fact, a lot of the detritus stayed in England. The, it was only ever about a third of the convicts that Britain produced that ever came out here on an annual basis. They, a lot of them just stayed in England and they were improving the prisons in England. And of course it only stopped when the Australians rose up and said, look, please don't send any more of you. Mm. <laughs> You're taking our jobs and that sort of thing. The, the British approach to penal colonies was very different from the French, wasn't it? It goes back to the point if the French had settled here, this would have been a country with a very different quality. Mm. Uh, I think that's right, yes. Uh, I think the French penal colonies didn't really get going till a little bit later but uh, by the time they did you know they were using places like New Caledonia mm. as penal colonies and they were sort of places of severe punishment mm. they worked people very hard almost mm. to death it was mm. harsh punishment for instance the removal of your hand if you were caught taking too mm. much in the way of food or whatever quite a different attitude Yes, we we often hear um, about um, terrible places, uh, Port Arthur and other places where convicts were very badly treated, and I'm sure they were. But those were, on the whole, places of secondary punishment. If you came out here and you just got on with your life and behaved yourself, you just went through the system and you could make a very good life for yourself. If you re-offended, you're in, you could get into deep trouble and you would be sent somewhere where you didn't want to go. So I think mm. there was cruelty there. And there, there were a few uh, cruel people in charge of those prisons that shouldn't have been in charge of them too. Yeah, and th th those, those things are reported, of course, and covered in Robert Hughes' The Fatal Shore. But it's important to remember, I think you make that point, that, that this, this was the exception. This was, the, well, this this was, was for the exceptionally the bad. Yeah, and it was for the, uh, it's for re-offending. It, you're not being punished for the, uh, your crime in England. You're, you're being punished for, for something else and, and uh, for a bad crime, yes. You know, again, if we could pursue this counterfactual of what Australia might have been like if, if the French had settled it. Another feature of French colonisation is that it tends to be ruled centrally from Paris, that um, there's this insistence, even today in places like New Caledonia, 
so many other decisions from New Caledonia made in Paris, the civil servants are sent out from Paris, and the result is that New Caledonia continues to cost the French government a lot mm. of money, mm. as it has done since it was first settled by the French. But there was an insistence with Australia, as I understand it, which I think comes through in your book, that the Brits were not going to pay for the upkeep of this place. They didn't want an ongoing bill for keeping Australia going, and, and, and the onus was on the settlers to make a go of it, to, to, to make their own way in life, to find their own way of... Uh, well, I th- trading I, I, and yes, I, I I don't go into the colony very much, um, but the, uh, the the development of the colony, but the uh, they did they they were dealing with a, a different situation, I suppose, than what the French were dealing with in New Caledonia. But yes, they the the Brits had to foot the bill for a very long time but uh, they were pl- they they also invested of course and and they got their returns on agricultural investment and so on right up through the 19th century indeed and into mm-hmm. the 20th um, but yes you're right the the uh, they they sent administrators out uh, I think for at least 50 years um, but in time um, the the Australians revolted against this and, and created, and eventually a parliament was created. Your story stops, of course, with with the colony being settled in 1788, mm. so you don't go on and cover the later history of the frontier wars, if you like, the, the arguments between the indigenous population and the settlers. But you do give us an account of what the thinking was towards the indigenous population before settlement. They were well aware, of course, there was a a population of sometimes quite aggressive people uh, here because Captain couldn't encounter them, they knew they were here. How did they intend to treat the local indigenous population and, and to what extent had they thought about how they would fit into the new colony? Well, there are some documents that were written prior to Philip's uh, departure, uh, his instructions from the king, um, and all of them were along the lines of uh, you shall establish friendship, uh, you shall uh, not treat anyone badly. They, they were um, in particular, particularly concerned with the treatment of women. Intermarriage would be allowed, but at all times the, woman, the women should be treated properly and if there was any uh, mistreatment, the man could be exiled to an island would you believe an island off the coast by himself uh, and and it's quite interesting that this comes up uh, as as a, a major offense generally the attitude was we will let the indigenous people run their own lives we'll, they can have their own institutions and their own rules and they even wanted them to be kept separate from the low life that the English were bringing. They said uh, the convicts and even the sailors uh, must not be able to deal with the uh, indigenous people and they must be kept separate, they they said, because there was a a sense that the indigenous people were perfectly happy running their own lives and they didn't want them to be messed up. So uh, probably in hindsight guilty of naivety but at least in the approach it wasn't as some people would portray it now 
you know, attempt to come in and subjugate and suppress. Uh, that, that was not the way they thought of it at all. They thought there'd be some form of peaceful coexistence, in they, essence. They, they certainly thought that. And as you say, it was naive and, and uh, it, it didn't come like that. But uh, yes, that was, if you look at the documents prior to departure, that, that is precisely what it was. Hmm. Any explanation? Was there, was there an expectation, too, that the indigenous population would be would welcome um, the the suddenly having the the uh, the products of a industrialising modern nation. They could bring things that the local population wouldn't have. I look. I haven't. I haven't seen evidence of that. But there was certainly uh, people writing in England and in Australia about the the the. Uh, uh, bringing uh, civilization to people, but that was on a more general basis. I haven't, I haven't seen anything like that in the official documents. I mean, again, to pursue this counterfactual history, if the French had settled, it wouldn't have been a great time, would it, in 1788, for them? Because within a year, France was in the middle of a, chaos. a bloody revolution, yes. a chaos. Yes, uh, yes it would. Have, yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, the great advantage of what the British were having was that they'd already already had the makings of a constitutional monarchy, not an absolute monarchy like France did. And there were other things too. Uh, Britain was already pursuing universal education, uh, which ultimately did their colonies a lot of good, I think. But uh, yes, no, French, uh, France would have been a chaotic uh, imperialist at that stage. Let's talk about the people, the key people in the settlement in Australia. We've spoken about Cook, we've spoken about Banks, we've spoken about Captain Arthur Phillips, of course, who led that first fleet. If you were to pick out, from the many people you mentioned in your book, five or six key people without whom settlement in Australia might not have occurred, who would be well, on your list? Well, you you have to hand it to Banks, which I won't go into again. But yes, he was pushing for years, and uh, he finally got there. And not only that, he kept his eye on Australia for the rest of his life, uh, and it, it did need that. And uh, when people were busy fighting Napoleon, Banks was always looking after Australia. The other ones, Pitt, William Pitt. Uh, doesn't get much of a mention in the documents because he did most of his governing by conversation. And, of course, conversations are lost, uh, which is a great problem for historians. But I suspect he had more to do it, more to do with it than we think. And one example of that is the church taking a minister was suggested very early on. And one of Pitt's best friends was William Wilberforce. And so when the decision was made, and they thought they'd be leaving in October, mind you, the first bit, he wrote quickly to his friend William Wilberforce. Now, we have that letter. If Wilberforce had been in London, we wouldn't have it. But we have uh, not only that, but uh, half a dozen letters between them, because like all good uh, Londoners, Wilberforce had escaped the summer heat and gone to Hull. And so Mercifully, we have these letters about the appointment of Richard uh, Johnson. But uh, in other respects, we don't know what Pitt was up to because 
he, the, all those conversations are lost. Uh, similarly, we, King George had to give his signature to this whole thing. And uh, George III is, is uh, constantly criticised, but he was actually a, a very enlightened man. And he didn't have his first bout of mental illness until late uh, 1788. So uh, he was, had his finger on the pulse well and truly. And another monarch might not have signed up, off on this ex- terribly expensive venture, uh, but he did. And uh, who else have we got? Oh, Alexander Dalrymple, terribly um, bad-tempered and difficult, but he was a fantastic cartographer and uh, got his uh, longitudes and lat- latitudes right. Now, who else? Oh, we've got my friend John Ledyard, the yeah. mad American. He, uh, he, he had a... A walk on roll, but it was a it was the significant walk on roll. Uh, and John Hunter, who was uh, the second in charge of the first fleet, he was a magnificent seaman, and uh, he rescued the colony. He was the one that went on the shopping trip uh, at the end of eighty eight when they needed food and rushed off to Cape Town. Went around the world, in fact, and brought food back. So yes, there were a lot of quite remarkable characters. Yes, George III, you mentioned, I mean, he's just been subject to a, a new biography by Andrew Roberts. Right. And I think Andrew Roberts is attempting to correct that misunderstanding, mm. this really slur that's been cast on George III mm. um, as the man who lost America for mm. the Brits and then went bonkers. Um, it's a famous uh, ditty by Edmund Clarehue Bentley. George III ought never to have occurred. One can only wonder at so grotesque a blunder. Uh, but because, you know, you start in your book, it's in your book. Um, surprisingly, Roberts doesn't cover in any depth, but George III was crucial to the founding of Australia and that he mm. supported it. He, he was interested in the place. Mm. He mm. followed Cook's voyage. In fact, I think it was King when, when Cook departed. He'd been King for a long time. And he'd yes, followed Cook's yes. voyage, he'd, and, he'd seen yeah. what Cook had brought back, he'd seen the kangaroos, he'd, you know, he was excited about the place in a sense. And uh, He was, and uh, he was also uh, a very close friend of Banks. And um, Banks was a, a wealthy man who didn't squander his wealth, he used it to good effect. And one of those was, uh, he, he bought a place down near Kew where uh, both King George and Queen Charlotte were, and he became a very, very close personal friend of both, visited them often there at Windsor, and uh, but kept it to himself. He, he d- didn't go and tell the press. And uh, he would have... Uh, they supported each other, Banks and, and George, and uh, that's why I think it got off the ground. You're, you're passionate. I sense you're passionate about this subject. <laughs> yes. You, 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 like me, I think you feel that we should understand... Australia's history better. We should know the facts for a start before we can even start talking about. Well, I think I think it's it's such a good story. The <laughs> the the Anglo-French thread of the Australian story gives gives it the context uh, because without it, you, you sort of just dealing with flying Dutchmen coming over the horizon for no particular reason. Suddenly, you have a context, and and it's a lot of daring do. It's. Um, you know, it's a ripping yarn, and <laughs> and there's a lot of courage, and there's a, a lot of mishaps, and uh, 
and uh, it's very exciting. And I, I, above all, I think it would make children excited. And that, you know, you, you'd want to know who won. <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. What hope that your book will be taught in schools? <laughs> well, look, I think with any luck, someone will think we ought to mention this. Uh, it is amazing the number of people who don't even know La Perouse was here. Uh, they certainly don't know that um, he was here for a whole six weeks and did an awful lot of uh, surveying. And, you, you know, they surveyed all, uh, the Georges River all the way up to Liverpool. Uh, he was under instructions to find out all he could about the place. And, and um, I also found uh, the uh, manuscript which says that uh, Philip invited La Perouse to Sydney uh, and he stayed two nights here with three of his friends and uh, they had a great party. So, so it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's a wonderful story. It's pretty fundamental, isn't it? If, we, if we're going to educate people as citizens of Australia, they should know the history. They should know it in the kind of depth you've just described. Well, they should know it. They should know it all. They should know the, the, the dark moments and the light moments, but they should above all know why we're here. I mean, th that Anglo-French story explains the context. Mm. And, of course, as, as you've said, if, if, if it hadn't been for that race to get the first fleet here, who knows what would have happened to the country. I don't, I don't think it would have been as good. Beating France to Botany Bay, The Race to Found Australia by Margaret Cameron Ash. It's published by Quadrant Books, and congratulations. Thanks to Keith Winshuttle at Quadrant for taking this on board and and making it happen. It's got a handsome cover and as usual with the Quadrant books it's a, a very nice uh, printed production there. But thank you most of all Margaret for doing the hard work, for having the enthusiasm and for telling this story in such a fantastic way. Thank you Nick. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation coming to you from the Mentis Research Centre. If you'd like to support this great free content and keep it free, then why not subscribe to the Mentis Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to www.mensisrc.org. I'm Nick Cater for the Mentis Research Centre. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.